Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Anaja Newsom. Anaja, how are you? I'm doing great. Great. Thanks for having me. Yes, you're very welcome. Great to, uh, great to connect with you. So before we dive into today's topic, why don't you go ahead and tell the listener about yourself, tell them your educational and professional background, and then what you're doing today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so again, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Anaja Newsom. I am the owner and founder of Optimized Strength. Um, I'm also a faculty researcher at the University of Central Florida. Um, so I got my PhD in training in exercise physiology and public health. Um, and I really wanted to understand if exercise and sport are so good, why don't more people do it? And so I was able to kind of combine this idea of understanding the physiology behind exercise and also kind of behavior change in general for health and mm-hmm. behaviors. And so I combined those two um, into an interdisciplinary PhD. Uh, which I earned back in 2021. Um, and since then, I've been doing research specifically in exercise and mental health care. Um, I really have a long-term goal of integrating exercise as a standard of care in, in health care, including mental health. Um, I think it's so important and it's uh, that the, the literature shows that there's just so many benefits to exercise when it comes to obesity-related risk factors, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, cancers. Um, and so I think it's so important and we could really reach the people that need it the most through our clinical practice. I think that we would be able to change kind of the prevalence of some of those non-communicable diseases that we have out there. Um, outside of that, I'm a weightlifting coach. I coach here in Orlando, Florida. I love coaching the snatch and the clean and jerk. I've been doing it for quite some time as an athlete and recently as a coach for probably the last five years or so. So when I'm not researching or teaching, that's kind of where I am. That's awesome. So I'm curious, what did you find with your research on why exercise isn't more prevalent or why why does it seem to be a struggle for, for really, I guess, most people? Yeah. Um, really great question. And I think if I had the exact answer to that, um, I'd be making a heck of a lot more money than I'm making right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that there's a couple of facets and two that I'll specify here. One, I think that there is this misnomer with the purpose of exercise and physical activity. Um, physical activity being the more general bodily movement, get your heart rate up, get moving, sit less, right? And then exercise being a very structured subset of that for the purposes of health benefits. And I think that, one, we inaccurately use those terms interchangeably when they are different. And I think that the myth associated with exercise in general for most people is that it's for weight loss. And that the reason that we do exercise is to lose weight. And we have an obesity problem in our country specifically. We have a rising level of obesity in our young people where it used to be a a disease of aging. It used to Mm -hmm. be that we saw later in life. We're seeing it in young people, adolescents, children. And so it's a much bigger problem. 
However, exercise does more than just change how our body is shaped and our relationship with gravity, right? And so mm-hmm. I think that for those people that weight loss is not their primary motivator, they don't feel that they need to exercise because that's what we have attributed exercise to. The other thing that I think we would we can attribute it to is that I think that we have really painted this picture of what exercise has to be, right? It has to be in a gym. You have to have on a certain attire. You have to be there for two hours and you have to sweat really hard and then you have to be sore the next day. And that is exercise. And that's scary for a lot of people, especially people who didn't grow up as athletes and people who didn't have family that engaged in regular exercise and sports. And so I think that we have to change the narrative about one, what counts as exercise, what is important when we we think about exercise and physical activity, and two, what are the purposes of exercise and how can it benefit us, not just changing our body composition. Yeah, 100%. So right now I'm an editor and I'm constantly looking for potential authors And so just by the nature of the beast, I spend quite a bit of time on social media, Instagram, just looking who's out there, who's putting out content, things like that. And one thing I've noticed is this, the the adding the fitness to your handle, Mm -hmm. like so-and-so fitness. And I'm like, okay, I'm just kind of noticing who tends to do that. And this is what I've seen. And maybe you've seen something different. It tends to be people in the physique community bodybuilders, physique athletes. And that to me sometimes is like the perception of what fitness is to a lot of people because of stuff like that. And that is an aspect of fitness, like having physique goals or training that way. Sure. Like that's an aspect of it, but that's like an itty bitty bit of fitness. Like there are tons of people who don't have that goal. Or don't want that goal. And that's that's okay. That's totally fine. And there's people that do. Like my preference has always been weightlifting, strength and power, hypertrophy-based exercise. But there's a lot of people who who don't really want to do that. And there's so many more things out there for them that I, I think they're unaware of. And then your point about what is exercise? Is it going to the gym for an hour minimum to two hours? And I just have always thought and felt like one of the biggest barriers to incorporating exercise or physical activity embedded in your daily life is just, I feel like America in general is not set up for it. Like our, our overall environment is really not conducive to being a healthy person. It is not. I've just like seeing what, grocery within the grocery store and what the we have I don't this is a big, big topic but it's, it's something I've thought about a lot recently I think as I've gotten older and now I have kids and I'm ha- having to think about okay how am I going to make sure that I stay active stay healthy now for the rest of my life when I have way more demands that's another aspect of it too is people have a lot going on Like there are so many things competing for our time. And one of the first things to go typically is exercise. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 
that has, I'm sure we'll discuss this, that has a, a bad, maybe a pot- potential negative mental health aspect to it in, in addition to physical health. And so, yeah, there's a lot of factors there. And I just remember one time I had a professor, right? I had a colleague when I was in, the, in, when I was still teaching, he always led a trip, I think every other year to China, like a summer study abroad trip. And one of the things that he remembers the most was that at any point in time, wherever you were at, no matter where you, what, like, no matter what time of day it was, there was probably something you could do for physical activity. It was just, they would just drop whatever. Oh, there's Tai Chi going on in the park. Okay, let's go do that for 10 minutes. Or it didn't matter if you were wearing like jeans or whatever, you just did it. And people didn't think that was weird. And I think about that today. I think you think about the, the person at a park sometimes who's doing like pull-ups on the monkey bars. Mm-hmm. Most people would say that's kind of weird. <laughs> but Absolutely. But the, yeah, so like with that kind of stuff was more accepted if anyone like, I work from home. So if I stop everything and hit a set of bodyweight squats, no one cares. But that's not really something people do in an office. You know? so, Correct. Correct. Well, anyway. and, and I also think that there are lots of barriers that are environmental to, yeah. to, to physical activity. You know, you think about things like safety. In some neighborhoods, in some areas, to ask someone to go outside for a walk for 30 minutes in their neighborhood is absurd mm. because it's not safe to do that. They yeah. either don't have sidewalks or there's a, a high prevalent crime. Maybe they're, they don't have crosswalk and maybe it's an area where people tend to run stop signs and red lights and things like that. And so when you think about the, all of the barriers and, and, and I see it here in America and for people that have had the privilege of traveling outside of the country, you start to notice how different it is and how it's absolutely not normal to have food desert and areas with without parks and areas without bike trails and walking yep. trails. It, and but that is the case for so many Americans that it makes it challenging to get in. Just general physical activity. Like you, I do work from home a lot. When I'm not in the classroom, um, I tend to be at home. And it's easy for me to say, you know what? I've got 20 minutes. But put on my shoes and, and go for a walk in my neighborhood. But that's a privilege. And I don't exactly. think that many people look at it or consider it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that that's a huge topic. I also say, what's it, I don't know if you found this, also say interestingly, though, my like needs, non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, just like general activity has plummeted since. So there's a trade-off, right? Yes, we can kind of have more freedom, but I went from, you know, coaching on the floor, teaching, I don't know how many hours on the floor a day, might be three to four, say maybe five, depending on the day, to being at a desk in front of a computer most, mostly. So even if I, you have to be very intentional about getting in some extra activity outside of your dedicated workout time because three to four days a week may not be enough from that perspective if the goal is kind of more body composition things like that so one of the things that i'm studying um, right now and that i hope to publish on in the next couple of months is this idea of the 24-hour movement guidelines where you know we break down physical activity and exercise but there's also like 16 other hours of the day where we are sleeping or eating or driving or getting screen time. 
And all of those things matter. So when you talk about Mm -hmm. MVPA, moderate to vigorous physical activity, that is such a small percentage of of what we do. Even as a a diligent, Mm -hmm. intentional exerciser, (laughs) I'm usually working out four or five, sometimes six days a week. I am getting my MVPA in. But for people that do get in 60 minutes, 90 minutes, two hours of exercise training, so much of our general health depends on what we're doing with the other 22 hours in our day. And I don't think that people take that into consideration. If you work out for an hour, but then you sit for the other 10 because you're at work and you don't get any type of activity in or get up out of your seat, that has major implications for cardiovascular disease, for metabolic syndrome, for type 2 diabetes, things like that. And so I think that we all, we have to consider exercise is so important. Exercise and training and sport participation is so important, but general physical activity and movement throughout Mm -hmm. the day might have a a bigger implication on physical health and mental health. Yeah, that's a great point. So let's go ahead and dive into the mental health aspect. So what do we know? And you can get, you can be pretty high level broad overview here. You don't have to get into the super nitty gritty because you could spend hours talking about it. But in general, what do we know about the impact of physical activity on mental health or our our brains? Like what, what kinds of things physiologically happen that are beneficial? Yeah, great question. And you're right. I could probably have a full episode <laughs> breaking this down, but I'll say broad and I'll say that mm-hmm. in general, we look at physical activity and the impact of mental health in kind of two broad ca- categories. We look at the psychosocial aspect, so self efficacy, relationship. We talk about coping. We look at things like self esteem. And then we have the neurobiological and the physiological aspect where Believe it or not, physical activity actually changes uh, the way our brain functions, right? Mm -hmm. So neurotransmitters in our brain are actually impacted by physical activity, primarily aerobic. That's what the evidence shows us at this moment. So moderate to vigorous aerobic activity impacts the neuroplasticity of our brain, meaning they're the a protein called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And it's thought to be correlated with depression. So lower levels of this neurotransmitter in the brain is often associated with higher levels of depressive symptoms. And so if, and, and we have seen at least on an acute basis, acute bouts of exercise or aerobic physical activity increases the levels of BDNF that we have in our brain. So what we see is that just engaging in, I mean, as little as 20 minutes can improve our mood, can improve our functioning, and can reduce those depressive symptoms from a biological standpoint. And I think that's so cool that we can make those connections. Uh, We don't have causality yet. And so, so I want to caution, you know, my psychology friends out there that are going (laughs) to listen and tell me, but we're not saying that one is causing the other, but we have enough science that says that they're associated with one another. Um, And so that's one part. We also see physical activity 
impacting our cortisol awakening response. Um, so not that we don't have stress because we're exercisers. I think people think that exercisers and fitness professionals, we don't experience stress and that's not the case. Um, exercise in and of itself is stress to the body. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. people forget that part is that we are actually inviting stress into our body. But the more that we exercise, the better that we regulate how we um, respond to stressors. And that cortisol awakening response, especially in the morning, first thing in the morning, helps us reduce cortisol throughout the body, which then helps us deal with stress better, have a better physical, physiological response to stressors throughout the day. Um, and so I always share with people, like, if you just get up and go for a walk in the morning, a jog in the morning, go for a bike ride in the morning, that could have implications for how you respond to negative stressors for the rest mm. of the day, right? And we yeah. also know that cortisol is associated with increased visceral fat and adiposity and, and all those things. And so yeah. we can't, we see the correlations there, but I think that from a biological, physiological standpoint, we see that exercise changes the way our body responds to, to stressors. Very interesting. And then of course, then there's other good things that come with what you just mentioned too. Getting outside, being in nature, hopefully, if you if that's an option for you, getting some sunlight if it's the right time of day and it's the right area of the country. So fortunately, right now in Iowa, I can't, you know, it doesn't really help me a whole lot because the, the rays of the sun aren't strong enough until March, but whatever. Right. So yeah, there's that stuff too. So how about the self-efficacy aspect of things and like confidence levels? What have you seen or what have you learned on from that aspect? Yeah, absolutely. So we also see that, and, and it will be interesting, ask me in five years if these things <laughs> are related. I, I hypothesize that the changes that we see neurobiologically and, and chemically that happen in our brain also impact the psychosocial aspect. So improves our self-esteem, improves our self-efficacy, improves our relationships with others, uh, reduces aggressive behaviors or things like that. Um, and so I would say that we see that exercise improves self-efficacy in a couple of different ways. Self-efficacy is different than self-confidence. Self-confidence mm -hmm. is generally a personality trait, right? So someone that it has high levels of confidence tends to have high levels of confidence regardless of what they're doing. They just believe okay. in themselves generally as a person that they can yeah. accomplish things, right? Yeah. I feel good about myself. I am confident and put any task in front of me, I can do it, right? Hmm. That's usually genetic personality dispositions or really as modifiable as something like self-efficacy. So efficacy okay. is something that is very specific to a task. Um, so we usually refer to it as exercise self-efficacy. My belief that I can engage in exercise or physical activity, regardless of what's happening to me, I can overcome barriers. I can overcome challenges, whether they be perceived or real, to accomplish the thing that I said I was going to set out to do, right? And so we noticed that regular engagement and physical activity improves self-efficacy, right? So the more that we do it, the better we feel about it, the better we feel that we can achieve those things. And in the beginning, I, I think that this literature still holds true. About six months is where we tend to see the drop-off, right? In the beginning, people have low levels of self-efficacy. They may be doing it, 
But as soon as the sun shines in the wrong direction, they fall off the train, right? As soon as it becomes too hard or as soon as something else, they have to make a priority, they're no longer able to maintain their exercise routine. And so we see usually about that six month part, uh, point is where people start to build self-efficacy for exercise. Meaning when my work schedule changes, I can still rearrange my ability to, to exercise, right? When I am sore, I can, I now know what to do to alleviate that soreness so that I can still exercise. When I am presented with Taco Tuesday, as opposed to going to my yoga class, I know that I can do both, right? Sure, right, <laughs> yeah. important. <laughs> we're not making decisions between yoga and tacos. We're going to do both. And I think that's, that that is, that's very, I think it's very important that people know that you can <laughs> do both. So I think that we see that exercises, it, it, it improves self-efficacy. Mm-hmm. And then that self-efficacy sometimes trickles over to confidence in other areas, ability to cope with um, relationship stressors, uh, physical stressors, occupational stressors. Um, and so we see that resiliency is often a result, a result of overcoming obstacles in the gym. I'm actually doing a study right now where we're looking at building physical strength as a proxy for building psychological coping strength. And so the idea is that if you take someone who's never strength trained before, can you improve their physical strength over eight to 10 weeks? And how does that translate to their perception of their ability to cope with psychological stress? So I don't have the results there. I wish I did, but I, so far we're seeing some association there where one impacts the other. I'm glad I'm glad you addressed the self-efficacy versus self-confidence and I'm glad you already actually addressed my next question was going to be is the self-efficacy like transferable to other areas because this is something that I think in our world we kind of use this as a a reason why you should participate in exercise it's like oh well if you exercise and you get fitter other areas of your life will improve you'll be all this stuff and I, I don't know I feel like I've seen a lot of instances where that doesn't happen you know, okay, it might, but just because, yes, in this area might improve, you might get other things might improve because of this, but not always. So that's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting finding or distinction. I'll say that it's less to do with the fitness level or the improvement in fitness and more to do with task mastery. And so your yeah. ability to set a goal set action steps to reach that goal and then achieve the goal, whether it's to run faster, be stronger, that I think is irrelevant to when we're translating this over to self-efficacy. I think it's about mastering a task that might be a physical task, increases our belief in our own abilities to overcome things in other areas. So I think it's less about, well, if you get in shape, then we'll be able to have self-efficacy in other areas. I think is more showing yourself and having the positive experiences with overcoming obstacles, overcoming barriers, setting a goal and reaching that goal and mastering a task that is more important yeah. than the actual fitness related yes. benefit. Yeah, that's a great point. 
it's almost a little more skill based because you, you learned the skill of doing these things. You've been through that process of setting goals, achieving them, coming up with behavior goals that you can then lead to the outcome. Yeah, for sure. So I do want to ask about kind of the flip side of this, mm-hmm. of when maybe you're kind of in our world, you grew up like us, kind of we were interested in fitness and training and whatnot, like really from early, early age or early on. And then it's kind of just part of our life. What about when the fitness aspect, exercise aspect of our lives of maybe how we identify as a person goes the other way? Because I mean, I felt this, especially as I've become a dad and have two kids now, it's like, I know that if I'm not very intentional and essentially schedule times where I'm going to work out and train because I still have strength goals, physique goals, or I still care about that. I I, I know I'm not going to really be setting any major PRs, but I still care about those things. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if I, if things happen where I'm not able to get it in, and my wife is amazing about knowing, okay, dad needs this time for him to work out or whatever. Yeah, it does affect me. It does affect my mood. And I know other people like this. It's not just me. If if we feel like we're not getting the aspect in because we know it's important, but we do enjoy it, it almost has a, a, a negative effect on my self-image and my mood. Yeah. Absolutely. What, just talk about that uh, kind of like that balance, so to speak. Yeah, I love that athletic identity. Mm-hmm. It is a real thing. It is very strong. Mm-hmm. And having a strong athletic identity is not just I like to work out, right? I I like to exercise. I enjoy it. That's great. But having an athletic identity where your identity is tied to physical goals of being an athlete, it can in impact your mental health when you transition away from that athletic identity. And I'd say this happened to me recently. I spent eight weeks on the couch um, expecting my first child. And for eight weeks, I couldn't even go for a walk. So Mm -hmm. I went from training six days a week, 90 minutes, two hours as an Olympic weightlifting athlete and coach Mm -hmm. to not being able to go for a walk outside for eight weeks. Mm -hmm. That was really challenging, and I it did impact who I felt that I was, my purpose, all of those things, right? And so you it can quickly skew the other way. And so for I, I have a couple of recommendations for that. I think one thing it comes from the idea of the all or nothing uh, mindset that we tend to have when we have a strong athletic identity. I have to do the things that I was doing before. Or nothing else matters. Or nothing. Yep. If I right? can't train for two hours, then I'm and if not I even... can't, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Then it doesn't matter at all, right? If, yep. if I can't get out there, get a good warm up in, get all my warm ups done, my my working sets, and have like a cool down session and stretch it, and drink my protein shake after, it's all for naught, and I should probably just do none of it, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that having a a gross mindset toward the purpose of exercise um, is really important. Understanding that we have to be able to shift within season 
um, the seasons approach has kind of been what I have adopted in the last couple of years. I feel like you have to. If you're a parent, you just have to. Like it, yeah. I'm like, you know it, what? It's, otherwise, it's just futile. You know, it's, yeah. I'm like, for right now, in this season, if I can move my body for 30 minutes, I've done something. That's great. It's okay for right now. And it doesn't take away how good of a person I am. It doesn't take away how great of a researcher I am. It doesn't take how great of a, take away how great of a coach I am. Um, it doesn't take how, you know, take away how good of a, a friend I am. Like those things that have to, you, you have to kind of help yourself realize that your self-concept has so many other identities, even though that athletic identity is probably very pervasive. Understanding that there are seasons of life and seasons of athletic training. And I wish that we, there, there are some sports that do this really well, right? Football season. You know what football season is. And when football season ends, there's a distinct end point, right? In which you can go and do other things and practice other self-concepts and invest your time and energy into other areas and aspects of your life. And there are some sports, Olympic weightlifting, and I will call it out like I see it, there is no end of the season. And I think that negatively impacts your overall mental health because you're always on. And if you are off because you created your own season or boundaries, you feel like you're missing out on something. You feel like you're losing something. And I say that, if we can't understand that there are seasons to life, those seasons might be weeks, it might be months, it might be years um, in which we ebb and flow with our athletic identity. Um, and then the second thing I'll add there is that the transition in and out of sport is a pivotal point for mental health when it comes to athletes specifically. And it's, it's an area of intervention that as coaches and as practitioners, we need to be mindful of when someone enters a sport, we need to check in on them. We need to have resources for them. What does it mean to be an athlete? What does it mean to have a strong athletic identity? And how is that impacting people from a, from a psychological standpoint? And then on the flip side of that, we'll transition out of sport. And we have to appreciate other areas of our self-concept. That is very challenging. It is not just a, okay, I walk out of the gym one day and all of a sudden I'm not an athlete anymore. That's not how, <laughs> yeah. that's not how it goes. No. You know? There are mm. lots of things that change there. And I think that even the International Olympic C- Committee in their consensus statement, they share that the exit from sport, whether voluntary or involuntary, is an important part of intervention when it comes to the mental health of athletes. And they're speaking of elite athletes, but I'm Corey, I'd be, I'd say it's you and I who we literally grew up as an athlete, right? And then all of a sudden we shifted. We had to transition. Our life requires us to transition. Mm -hmm. That's an important, that's an important time period for, understanding the impact of mental health yeah and i'll also kind of for me personally and i think i, I kind of wonder if other there are other people out there from we kind of talked earlier about 
how our environment is set up or is, I guess not set up for being healthy or kind of weird if you adopt really what we consider good healthy fitness habits. I kind of just want to buck the trend, you know? I don't want to really fall into kind of the mold that a lot of Americans fall into or where, yes, when they get to be kind of 30, mid-30s, 40s, maybe they have to be on medications for metabolic uh, issues or whatever it may be. I, there's a huge part of me that just doesn't want to do that. Yeah. And so like if, if I'm starting to feel like um, my life is getting to a point or things are getting to a point that then allow me to not accomplish that. I do get a little agitated. It definitely is is interesting. And then the other aspect I'll kind of just kind of want your thoughts on is like I know I have friends who who know how much better they feel when they can exercise regularly that if they can't do it again they're just almost like oh man if I, I I'm not, I don't have my release anymore. I don't have my I don't have my stress release reliever. And then on top of that, they know the physiological things that happen when you exercise. So it's almost a double whammy. They know they're not getting the the physiological benefits. And then they don't just get to do something they enjoy, whether it's a health issue, whether it's time commitments or whatnot. Any recommendations you have would have there? Or is that something you've seen also in the literature? Yeah. Um, and so I think that you can look at this from a couple of different standpoints. And if I'm understanding your question, you're asking this idea of you just can't engage in exercise and physical activity the way you, you want to, right? What are the recommendations for that? So I'm going to kind of buck the system a little bit. We make time for what we want to make time for, right? We do what we prioritize and what we think are important. And I'm a firm believer in it. I'm a firm believer in if you want to make time for exercise, it might mean that you can't go out for heavy hours right? Uh If you want to go out and have drinks on on Saturday with your friend, that might be the time that you're sacrificing for exercise. And so I believe that at some point we have to say, what is our priority? And if it's not exercise, there's no judgment here, right? If it's not physical activity, there's no judgment here. Fine. That's a choice that you've made. However, there are things that impact most choices. And I think that we also have to understand that family responsibilities, health issues, job responsibilities, all of those things are barriers to engaging in regular exercise. And I think that when you look out on social media, I don't spend as much time on it as I did it at first, but when you look out in social media, there's so many people that say have that first idea of you have to make the choice. And if you're not making the choice, then you're actually making the choice, right? And those same people are saying, we have the same 24 hours in a day, just get it done. And to those people, I will say that there are social determinants of health. There are education, there are occupational employment, family, disability, health, barriers or determinant of being healthy and engaging in regular physical activity. And I think that as practitioners and as researchers and as science communicators and as influencers, good God help me, as influencers, we have (laughs) got to acknowledge those determinants 
we have oh, to 100%. acknowledge that not everyone is playing on an equal playing ground, right? And so I, I, I would say that for employers and, and communicators of clients, we have to understand and acknowledge that not everyone is playing from the same level playing, yeah, right? 100%. And I think that we have to communicate that, and this kind of goes back to my very first point, that exercise is not all or nothing. And I think mm-hmm. that if we can do a better job of meeting people where they are and, 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 and helping them understand how to enjoy physical activity first and f- foremost, and not look at it as something that we have to do to lose weight or something that we have to do for a specific reason, health reason, I think that we can get people to engage in physical activity in a way that makes sense for them in their season of life that brings joy to physical activity. I don't know about you, but when I don't enjoy physical activity, I think back to having to train and in the heat and I was a softball player. So mm-hmm. conditioning in the heat wasn't always enjoyable. And so how many times did I quit in my head because I didn't want to do this? Well, the same thing yeah. happened later on in life, but nobody is telling you to be at practice at four o'clock. Yeah, that, that little external care, it's not there anymore. Correct. Like your desire to win games, win a championship, that's, yeah. that's not there anymore. It's not yeah. there. And no one is holding you accountable for being there. It's about you. And so I think a couple of things that I have done and things that I recommend when I'm doing health coaching is find your why, not mm-hmm. the why that other people are giving you, the you have to do it to be healthy. You have to do it to lose weight. You have to do it because of what you ate. Find your why. And for me, my why is I'm getting ready to have this kid and I want to be able to keep up with, with her when she's 12, 13, 15, 16 years old. What do I need to do to be ready for that? When I, you know, see friends and family members some sometimes who can't care for themselves because they didn't take care of themselves. I don't want to be a burden on my family. I want to be able to live life and have this quality of life that allows me to travel and go and experience and do things and not have the barrier of physical non-functioning. Yeah. That's my why. And that is my why that sometimes it it means I got to get up and go for a walk when I don't want to. That's why I choose to go and lift weights when maybe I didn't want to. I have a jam-packed schedule today. And the last thing I wanted to do was get up at 7 a.m. to go work out. But that's what I did because it means that I'm going to feel better for the rest of my day. Yeah. And that's <clears throat> that contributes to my why. And so I just encourage people to find their why and find something that they enjoy that matches. Their why may mm. not be elite athlete, right? And thus, you don't have to be in the gym for two hours if your goal is not to compete at the Olympics, right? Right. And so I think that we have to have these levels and kind of meet people level. Well, I will just say, and I thank you for taking time to to come on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> for, I, absolutely. I really appreciate that. No, yeah, those are all really good points. And this transitioning, kind of going back to the, your discussion on the transitioning from athlete to non-athlete um, and the schedule that competitive athletes need to maintain, typically in college, there, there's a lot of behavior ramifications with that and what we know about maybe being continually uh not forced i guess it kind of is forced if you're at the d1 level but athletes are just like regular people they don't always like to train 
They don't like getting up at 5 a.m. to go train all the time. Even if they have a very motivated athlete for their sport, for five, four to five years potentially, their schedule is kind of forced upon them. And we know, like, if you're constantly, like, kind of, I don't know, you could probably use a better terminology here, but if you're constantly kind of going against the grain of things that you don't want to do, oh, I've got to do this, and so I'm going to kind of force myself to do it because I have to. Uh, it's kind of the, the, if people have read the Chip and Dan Heath book about the elephant and the writer, I don't know if how well that holds up in research, but you're going to eventually kind of tire out with making decisions that don't fall in line with what you want to do or what your goals are, like finding your why that don't align with it, or if you don't feel there's a need to do it. So when you're not, don't have that anymore, I can totally see why some athletes just fall off the way and, and their health really deteriorates at it just through a huge clip because the structure isn't there anymore. But if they weren't bought into that from the get-go and they weren't motivated from a different reason other than to win, the likelihood of them continuing to do it is very small. Absolutely. Very we see, small. We see, yeah. a lot of, we see a lot of burnout as people yeah. transition out of sport. And so while initially, while you're in sport, you're winning, you're excited, you're meeting friends, you're, all of the things are positive, mm-hmm. but you're also physically and psychologically burning yourself out, which is why when we see that when athletes get outside of that kind of that exosystem of their sport, there with the governing rules and the expectations and the, the seasons and the, the structure, they tend to completely fall off the other way because they have endured so much psychological burnout without being taught self-management skills, without being taught positive coping strategies that are maybe not as tied to the specific sport or the specific task, but just them as athletes, right? And so we have to put coaches with how to teach an athlete while they're in their sport about the life after sport, right? And I spend a lot of time talking to my athletes about that. I, live, I, I work with my athletes are a range of areas, but for sure. my junior athletes, I, I've had the privilege of having a couple athletes that I've had from maybe 14, 15 years old up until early 20s, right? That is a critical transition window, yeah. not just with sport, but just with human development. <laughs> yeah. But like yeah, all lives, <laughs> life happens between that age. And I find myself a lot of times coaching the sport, like movement, strength, competition strategy. But I also find myself coaching real life. Like what is happening outside of your life without, or happening outside of the gym? What is happening yeah. outside of training? What is happening outside of competition? That's what I care about because that's going to help inform who you are on the platform. When athletes come in to the gym and they have a crappy day and nothing, they're not making lives, everything feels heavy, they don't move, they're not moving well. The first thing I ask them is, one, did you eat today? Because that's what you have to ask 16-year-old boys. (laughs) Did did you eat today? Uh, The second question I ask is, tell me about your week. Tell me about your day. And so many of them are experiencing life outside of the gym and outside of training and outside of competition and sport. And as 
as coaches, we're not addressing it. We're not talking to them about how your body doesn't know the difference between the psychological stress of a breakup and the psychological stress of missing a lift. Uh It's all stressors to your body that you have to learn how to cope with and manage and overcome. And so I think that as a part of mental health in sports, specifically when we're talking about competitive athletes, we have to be equipped as coaches, as strengths coaches, as leaders of sport organizations. We have to be equipped with the skills and the support and the resources to help our athletes learn about how their outside life impacts the training and the competition that they experience. Yeah. Absolutely. And unfortunately, the way, and I, I guess I'm more thinking of team sports here at, at the higher levels, it's just not set up that way. No. It's not. And this just happened. I, I can't remember what team it was with, but one of the one of the players said, I need a mental health break. And the coach was basically like, then just leave. <laughs> okay, if that's how it's going to be, then just leave. You don't. That's yes, I don't believe in that. And so yet the coaches in those roles also experience that. Like how many coaches basically said, I need to stop coaching because the stress and my inability to like manage it all is literally killing me. So it's just a weird disconnect, even though it happens, then they know it happens. For some reason, it it doesn't transfer apply to their athletes too. It's just results drive everything. Money drives everything. And I'm sure any high level sport is there. But yeah, as coaches, and that's was always top of mind for me. And as a, a collegiate strength coach was like, okay, I have to remind myself, none of these athletes are probably going to do any competitive sport after this. Right. So check myself on like the, this like huge importance I'm putting on strength and conditioning. And just that needed to kind of inform the way that I coached, so to speak, the way that I talked to my athletes and things like that. And yeah, I think some people might see that and and would be would have gotten maybe um interpreted as oh he's not holding them accountable. But accountability is not it's not just one thing. It doesn't look the same in every situation and this quote unquote hold people accountable can actually be very counterproductive from a long term standpoint of learning the skills of self management and all, all those types of things. And so yeah, long term wise, sometimes that's not beneficial for athletes. So so before we hop off today, is there anything else you'd like to mention about this topic that you really want listeners to to take home? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would say two things that I try to make or kind of drive home is that exercise and physical activity, here's my disclaimer, is not a replacement for therapy. Go talk to someone, go see 100%. a professional. And we have to stop the stigma around mental illness and psychological distress. It's real. It, it impacts people at different levels and different ways. Um, and so I think we, we have to kind of stop that stigma of mental associated with mental illness. So I'm not saying exercise and physical activity is not, it, it, it is in no way, shape or form a replacement for therapy um, and pharmacological therapy if that is the, the thing that in, in, is helping you. But I, I can say that the, the science is very clear. The evidence is very clear that as an adjunctive therapy, exercise and physical activity can be used to reduce 
mental illness um, symptoms and really help improve people's mood, fatigue levels. We've seen it in a, and and it's more beneficial than it is harmful. So there's always this pushback of, well, sometimes it can injure people and it sometimes it may not be, it, it's culture indicated definitely for eating disorders and things like that. And so we know yeah. that we're not talking yep. about those specific things, but I would say largely it is more powerful and more beneficial for more people than it is not. And so we can meet people where they are and get them moving in the right direction. I think we can do a lot of good when it comes to improving the law. Absolutely. Awesome. So Naja, where can people follow you? Where, where can people find you? You can find me if you are looking for health coaching, nutrition coaching. I am at optimizestrength.co. OptimizeStrength.co, and I'm also at OptimizeStrength on Instagram, Facebook, all of those things. If you want to connect with me personally, I do a lot of uh, science communication and sharing information, especially evidence-based research, and that is at Anajanusub PhD. And I have a lot of resources out there for free for people. So if you want to connect with me there, I'm more than happy to chat. Awesome, great. Yep. All that will be definitely linked in the show notes as well. So go check that out. And Naja, just thank you uh, so much for your time today. And thanks for uh, connecting with us on the podcast and your busy schedule. Absolutely. I'm glad that we can make it work. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.